Hey there, it's Gary Parish. It's Wednesday, January 30th, 2019. Welcome back to the Ion College Basketball Podcast, where we sometimes discuss camel fighting and leaky black. Matt Norlander is here with me, and I want to open up the Big 12 because it's been an interesting past two days in the Big 12. On Monday night, Baylor went to Oklahoma and won by 30, by 30, to extend its winning streak to five games. So Scott Drew's Bears are now 5-2 and two in the league. Tied with Kansas State and only Kansas State atop the Big 12 standings. And that's because Kansas lost 73-63 Tuesday night at Texas. So the Jayhawks are now 16-5 and overall, 5-3 and in the Big 12. But the even more concerning thing is that KU is now just 4-4 four and four since Yudoka Azabuki suffered a season-ending hand injury. And they're just 1-5 and five in road games on the season. So let's start here. Norlander, you have consistently said you will not pick anybody other than Kansas, in the Big 12 until KU's string of at least a share of 14 straight Big 12 titles is broken. But right now, Kansas is tied for third to Big 12 standings. The Jayhawks are trending in the wrong direction. And Ken Palm currently projects Iowa State to win the league outright and snap KU's streak. Question, are you ready to abandon Bill Self? Are you ready to say KU's streak of Big 12 titles is coming to an end? Question, where did you have Iowa State picked in the league? Answer, I have couldn't possibly remember something Answer, like that. I know it. It was sixth. I had him second. How we doing? Good morning. I can't <laughs> okay. believe it's been three days since we had a podcast. This week is flying by. I will not abandon my I will not abandon my post. I'm still gonna stick with this. I am still let me I think this is the language I've used in the past, but I will make it crystal clear as we start this Wednesday podcast. I will not pick Kansas to not finish atop the league standings in the Big 12 until it doesn't. There have been a couple of instances over the past 14 years where they have finished atop the league standings and actually shared a regular season title with a couple of other teams. I think that outcome is actually now most likely. I'm not going to give up on this. I'm just not going to abandon it. And as as you're mentioning this, I was thinking about it um, yesterday because I knew we'd talk about this. Earlier in the season, I, ref- I refused to abandon Villanova and then I feel like you kind of talked me into abandoning Villanova, and now look what's happening. So the same thing is applying here. I know in the aftermath of losing a road game at Texas, um, it's feeling like it's never been this much in jeopardy for Kansas. Maybe that's true, but I got to see it to believe it. And I also think Big 12 big picture-wise, I'll get to Baylor in a second, but I want to throw it back to you first. Big picture-wise, the Big 12, I don't think the the winner is going to get out of this without at least five losses, at least five. Right now, Baylor and K-State have two. Texas Tech, which is uh, bouncing back nicely, uh, has three. Kansas has three, and Iowa State has three. Um, I would say it's even relatively possible, maybe not likely, but if we, if we look up, we see three teams wind up finishing with five losses atop the standings. And um, if that indeed does happen, I think you're going to have some people out there that are going to refute the Kansas 15 straight years. But the, the record really is consecutive years finishing atop the league standings in the regular season, tie or no tie. I won't give up yet. And with Kansas, if you can take – now, it's easier said than done, and Texas was able to, to do this to a certain degree, thanks in part to Jackson Hayes, who um, is a raw talent, but if he wants to leave after one season, he will leave and he will be a first-round draft pick. Having a guy like him on the floor certainly had an impact, and – you can't get anything else consistent there. They didn't even start LeGerald Vick last night. Ochai Abaji started. He was actually he was he was fairly decent, but there's not they're not getting enough around him. They're just not getting enough help overall. And so now I wonder, uh, I playfully wonder, and yet I know there will be some heavy cynics out there. Um, will Silvio D'Souza be ruled eligible 
or not in in the coming days here. Seth Davis, uh, our colleague at CBS and who writes for the Athletic, maintains that it's it's coming like like by the weekend essentially. Uh, will will he get eligible? And if he does, how much will people lose their minds if Kansas gets DeSouza on the floor? There's also then the question of like, all right, getting him back is is important, but is it really going to be the difference or not? We will wait and see on that. But uh, but man, that was. Not a good performance, and now Kansas is – you mentioned the 4-4. Four and four. I'll extend the stat I mentioned on the previous podcast. All their losses have come on the road. They are 1-5 in road games. Um, haven't lost at home. Haven't lost on a neutral floor. So there are some bright spots here and there. But, yeah, this is a, this is a slipping Kansas team. And as they enter February, lots of doubt is out there. Oh, I can't wait to readdress this come the end of February, though, because I can, I can see it so clearly – We'll look up, and they'll have some one-game lead in the standings. I would um, – you you say that um, the the winner of this league is going to end up with at least five losses. I think five losses, meaning if you only have five losses in the league, you're going to win the league outright. I think I think six might even win it outright. Uh, it, certainly six, I, I would assume, would, would at least share the title. Um, and I, I'm not going to freak out about the conference standings. Like, that's the, the thing I've seen some people focus on, uh, you know, since – Tuesday night, which is, you know, Kansas is now five and three in the league, a game behind Baylor, a game behind Kansas State, tied for third with Texas Tech uh, in the win column. I, I don't care about that because we've we've actually seen Kansas make up um, ground, you know, throughout February in years past. We've probably done at least one podcast episode each year where. Uh, Kansas is trailing somebody or no longer projected to do this or that. And we, we ask these same questions that we're asking right now. We talk about the same stuff we're talking about right now. And then, just like you said, you, you look up in late February and Kansas has got a two-game lead and they're you know a, a, a weekend game away from clinching uh, at least a share of the title and we still got a week left in the season, whatever. To me, the more concerning thing is that they're not very good without the guy that they lost. And so you can look at big picture and go, hey, they're 16 and five with 12 wins over top 100 Kimpom teams. Um, the resume is still very good because the resume still is very good. But uh, the dude they used to build that a lot of that resume is not available now, and he ain't gonna be available. Like talking about Kansas from November 6 to today is kind of pointless. We re the, if you're going to discuss Kansas intelligently, you really got to start talking about them since the moment Doak suffered that hand injury, and they're four and four with two losses to unranked teams um, in that stretch, and you know they were an underdog last night at Texas, and and the and the 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 line got pushed up. In other words, it like opened at I don't know te Texas minus one, and by tip I think it was around two or two and a half. And then they go lose by 10. And that's a Texas team that, that is still is good in the computers, but they entered that game 11 and 9 and losers of five of their last six. So, like, what Oddsmakers did was evaluate Kansas based on what Kansas has been and concluded that Kansas should not win a game against a team that was one and five in its past six games. To me, that's the most concerning thing here is that, um, Kansas looks very average without Yudoka Azabuki, and and I think last night was another reminder of that. Yes, I agree, and it's why the uh, the seemingly pending news of Silvio D'Souza just I think does have um, 
relevance and potentially an impact. I'll also note that earlier this week, the NCAA determined that Miami sophomore, or no, excuse me, junior Duan Hernandez had entered into an agreement and accepted benefits from an agent with basically Christian Dawkins. This was a, uh, a tertiary uh, connection to the FBI case. And Miami, uh, the NCAA ruled that he couldn't play this year or 40% of next season. Hernandez subsequently declared for the draft. He'll never be playing for that school again. Um, so if people wondering about that case, and maybe it will indicate that Silvio D'Souza might necessarily be eligible. I, listen, it's the NCAA. Anything is possible. But the way that we know D'Souza and his guardian to be connected to this case is not the same circumstances that Miami's Hernandez was. So as you wait for that, keep that in mind. Um, I don't feel super strong predicting one way or another in this, uh, but I'm not exceedingly confident D'Souza will get eligible. If he does, I think he can make an impact. But Parrish, you're on the money just in terms of Doak, how much he meant, how he helped Lawson overall. And you can't expect, you can't ask Lawson, even though I'm sure he, he would love to do it, uh, to give you 29, 15, uh, you know, five assists and three blocks every night. It's just It's just not sustainable. And now... If you look at the Big 12 real quick here, I mean, they bit Texas wins, right? Huge win for Texas. Huge. Instead of 11-10, 12-9, and a big-time victory, only their second since January 5th. They also have wins over North Carolina and Purdue, has lost to Radford at home. Um, building one of – there are some real weird resumes out there. I won't say Texas has the weirdest one because there are some weird ones, and we've, we've hit on some of those in the past month on the pod. But Texas is uh, – is growing to something that I I can very much see Texas being one of those teams uh, we get we get seeming like one of them every four to five years about in the tournament where you look up and you and when they get in the tournament they've got like th- their three wins over 500 or four wins over 500 total and from a record standpoint it just doesn't look right but when you dig into the resume uh, it would ha- you'd have a hard time kind of keeping them out I think Texas is trending toward that overall so that was a that was a big win for for Shaka Smart's Longhorns. Uh, let me say one thing about uh, Silvio's situation at Kansas, because like you, I'm I, I'm I'm not confident predicting either way, if only because it, it, it you'll look dumb more often than smart if you start trying to predict what the NCAA is going to do in any case, because they're wildly inconsistent and they do not follow their own precedent. But I, I do a, a regular spot every Tuesday in, in Kansas City, and I was asked about it. On Tuesday, and one of the things I've said is that I feel this is such a complicated case because with Dewan Hernandez at Miami, you can say that the penalty is excessive, especially if you believe the reports that the um you know um, improper benefits that he accepted was amounted to less than five hundred dollars. Like if you want to say the penalty for that is excessive. I, I, I'll agree with you. If you want to say that amateurism rules that prevent things like that are ridiculous, I've been yelling that for years. But he did knowingly violate NCAA rules. You know, he knew what he was doing, and um, he got caught, and so there's a price to pay, whether you agree with the rules or not. Just like whether you agree with a speed limit or not, um, if you are in a 45 driving 65 and you get caught – um, there's a price to pay for it, even if you think that it's all ridiculous. Um, with Silvio's situation, it's a little, to me, more complicated because there's, I think everybody agrees, acknowledges that 
um, something outside of what the NCAA rulebook allows um, happened as it's connected to his recruitment. And presumably that is why he ended up at Kansas as opposed to Maryland or, or somewhere else. But there's also no evidence whatsoever that he knew that what was happening or allegedly happening. Um, it, it seems to have all happened above his head. And so I'm, I'm sympathetic to that. The idea that a student athlete would have things, games, seasons, perhaps maybe college careers ripped away from him because of something that he didn't, he wasn't involved in. He didn't know about, he didn't approve of like that, that, that all sucks. And so I'm sympathetic to that. And it's why if the NCAA grants him his eligibility, allows him to to play for Kansas again, I won't scream and yell that this is the worst thing ever because even though I don't think I would rule that way, I you know, I I, I, I I'm sympathetic to his very specific circumstances. That said, if the NCAA says he's never playing at Kansas or college basketball again i also won't scream and yell about that because i don't know how you enforce amateurism rules if you are going to ultimately say well the student athlete didn't know what happened that led to him enrolling at kansas therefore we're not going to hold him responsible for what happened that led to him enrolling at kansas because what that leads to if you want to go down the slippery slope thing is Basically, it's a mm-hmm. it's a cheat sheet for everybody in the country. Hey, you, you know, here's a, a a shoe company. Here's an assistant coach. Here's an agent going to give you fifty thousand dollars, hundred fifty thousand dollars to go play basketball at this school. Uh, the money's going to go from uh, this person over here to your guardian or grassroots coach or high school coach or father or whomever, and you just don't need to know anything about it. If you're ever asked about it, you just say you don't know anything about it. And then just like Sylvia D'Souza at, uh, at Kansas, you'll, you'll be allowed to play again. Uh, a, you probably won't get caught. We probably won't get caught. But B, if you do get caught, you just have to shrug your shoulders and say, but I didn't know, and everything will be okay. Like, again, I hate amateurism rules. The concept is outdated. It's morally wrong. But as long as the rules are in place, uh, I don't see how you enforce them if you allow – players to play even though their amateur status is compromised just because they there's no evidence that they knew what was happening what do you make of all that i largely agree with you and i think that kansas is going to try and make the argument that any benefits that were afforded to him um have been paid for retroactively in what would have amounted to game suspensions he did play last season and that uh i I think that also, like, the the status of D'Souza is not just will he play, will he not, um, will the NCAA hand out a similar suspension than it did uh, Hernandez. Um, I would believe, I would believe that whenever we find out more about this, the NCAA also has to determine um, if it's going to bring any sort of uh, potential uh, judgment on Kansas for playing him last season and if that violated anything and if so what Kansas might stand to lose from record vacation among other things but uh, the greater point you make there is level-headed and accurate um, 
You know, whenever we do get news, it might be in time for our next podcast. We'll wait and see. We'll have, we'll obviously react accordingly. Um, but in terms of on the court, parish, getting him back, I, I think if they if they do, yes, it's a help. But I, you know, however you want to slot Kansas right now, if you want to say Kansas, let's just you know, let's say Kansas, you have them as the fifteenth best team in the country, guys. I think that's where they were on Ken Palm when I looked last night. Getting D'Souza back doesn't doesn't to me that very inclusion doesn't jump them from fifteen to five. Maybe it, maybe it makes them you know fifteen to twelve or thirteen or so. There are other factors that need to get they need to get better with, most notably. Um, the freshman Dotson and Grimes just uh, they. This is why we sometimes take Duke and Kentucky for granted because they can rely on their freshmen to do so much. And Kansas, in many years, which has had, gr- had great ones, don't get me wrong, but it's no just it's no guarantee. And if they were playing more consistently, then Kansas wouldn't be in this position. Let's talk about Baylor for a second. Um, Fourteen six now, thirty first at Ken Palm. They're on a five game winning streak. This is a team that uh, started the season three and two, six and four, eight and five. 0-1 in the Big 12, 1-2 in the Big 12, and now they're 5-2 in the Big 12, tied uh, atop the league stage. I, I know you talked to Scott Drew after um, the, the Bears, like, won by 30 at, at Oklahoma, which is just ridiculous. Like, nobody in the country should win by 30 at Oklahoma. Not Duke, not Virginia, not anybody, and yet Baylor goes to, to Oklahoma wins by 30. I texted with Scott uh, late Monday. It really, that this is one of the I mean, we we focused in recent podcast about uh, you know the twists and turns of a season. Usually, the turns in the wrong direction. Uh, right now, Ole Miss is that. Um, I, I think Auburn is is probably that. But you talk about twists and turns turning upwards, like really taking a what looked like it was going to be a bad season. I, I mean, you can go into the archives of this podcast, and at one point we were discussing the Big Twelve and said Baylor is probably going to finish last in the Big 12 because it was a sensible thing to say at the time. And now we're sitting here on January 30th, and Baylor's tie for first in in the Big 12. Um, Really is a a, a bit of off-the-radar story, but still a remarkable story in college basketball. Yeah, it is. uh, I think Baylor had the most surprising January of any major conference team, and now it's it's, it's zipping up into the top top 40 in in the net rankings and uh, has five quadrant one wins. They it is doing this, so it's interesting because we talk about what Kansas can and can't do without Azubuki. Uh, you know, if you want to evaluate Azubuki as their second best player, I think that's fair. Baylor does not have its best player, and in fact, has not had Tristan Clark its best player since right before its last loss, which was Kansas. Coincidentally enough, on January 12th, since then, uh, since losing Tristan Clark, Baylor is five and one. Has won three road games, including, as you mentioned, the relatively shocking 30-point win at Oklahoma. And Scott Drew is building a case for Big 12 Coach of the Year at this point. We'll wait and see what happens. Here's what's fascinating to me about Baylor. I want to see how they play out through February because they'd be in the field if they started today, NCAA tournament field, that is. That wouldn't have been the case if we had done this podcast three weeks ago, really even two weeks ago. They wouldn't have quite had the uh, quite had the resume. But this is now, because Clark's gone, he was their 6'9", kind of do-it-all power forward. This is the smallest team by far in the Big 12. 
and uh, Drew told me it's you know smallest team he's ever had. This is the this is the second most shocking season as it's unfolding that he's ever had. The only one that was more surprising was 2009-2010. Um, that season, Baylor was picked to finish 10th out of what was a, then a 12-team Big 12, made the Elite Eight, and had a really really talented team. Turned out this season, Baylor was picked ninth out of 10th, and now you look up is tied uh, in the standings with Kansas State overall. But it's still it's such a small group. It starts a six-five quote center. And it is on pace here for the fifth consecutive season to be a top 10 team in offensive rebound percentage. We'll see if it can keep that up. Obviously, the Big 12 has some some serious bigs and front court presence. Uh, and that Baylor is a, is a zagging team while much of the rest of the league is, is zigging. So... They're gonna, I, they're gonna hit some skids here, but even just getting to the tournament would be incredible. Just a note to uh, a note on Baylor, Scott Drew. They are they are worth at least uh, hitting on at this point. They're in Wednesday's court report, among some other stories as well on CBSSports.com. Check that out. But it is, it is truly remarkable what they've been able to do and how they've been able to turn it like this because almost nobody saw this coming. And now to do it without their best player is even more, frankly, Parrish, it's ridiculous. Like <laughs> Drew, uh, Drew said it's, he, you know, he even thinks it's a little bit crazy at this point, but uh, he's riding with it and hopefully it'll be able to sustain itself. I mean, that's like what he told me. He was like, I don't, I can't make sense of this. <laughs> like, but the, but the players are playing well at the end. It's a lot of fun uh, to be uh, experiencing what, what they're experiencing. Uh, one thing worth noting, and this probably goes without saying, but I'll say it anyway. Uh, the Big 12 has eight top 35 Ken Palm teams, which is just, like, ridiculous. I mean, 80% of the league's in the top 35 at Ken Palm. So it doesn't matter how well you're playing or how well you've been playing lately. Um, I, I think what we've already learned about this league is that everybody is susceptible to multiple game losing streaks. So you can win five in a row and feel like you've really got some stuff figured out and the next thing you know, you you take a loss to a top 35 Kimpon team at home. Then you go on the road as an underdog against a top 35 Kimpon team. You take a loss there, and now you're right back where you were, you know, two weeks ago. And so Baylor is is obviously um, still susceptible to that. But I would I would argue literally everybody in the league, Kansas included, um, is susceptible to that. And it's uh, it'll be an interesting, perhaps the most interesting, uh, power conference race to watch going forward. Grant Williams had another nice game on Tuesday night. Uh, we're going to talk about that and the player of the year race next. But first, check this out. Are you looking for a new basketball shoe? If so, this is Gary Parrish here to tell you that the New Balance 2-Way V4 features the groundbreaking use of fuel cell technology with fresh foam creating the ultimate combination of rebound and cushioning. Every step feels explosive and dynamic, and the upper construction features a lightweight textile that's supportive and breathable. So whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the 2-Way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the 2-Way at newbalance.com. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. 
So, Norlander, your player of the year ranking, start with Duke Zion Williamson, obviously. But number two right now, you got Grant Williams, the reigning SEC player of the year. And he got 23 points, nine rebounds in a win at South Carolina on Tuesday night. And shouts to Tom Hart, who shouted out both Devin Downey <laughs> and Chester, South Carolina, on Tuesday night's SEC Network broadcast. Tom's a legend now, forever, like Terry Teagle. Uh, how much fun was that? Tom yeah. Hart dropping a Devin Downey, Chester, South Carolina shout out on the broadcast. Tom Hart, we hope slash think you were listening Thank you. If you can work one in one more time this season, that'd be incredible. That was uh, I wasn't I had the game on, but I had the I had the quad screen and I didn't have the volume on that one, so I didn't hear it as it happened. But then, you know, obviously people hit us up, and then our our own Kyle Boone actually captured the video and uh, and shared it. That was that was fantastic. That was a, that was a nice little surprise there. South Carolina couldn't get it done against Tennessee. Frankly, they needed Devin Downey. On no that question. floor last night, but uh, but regardless, no, that was that was a cool moment, and Grant Williams continues his his strong case uh, for Player of the Year. I think he has to be in anyone's top three at this moment. Um, I, the game tipped at five thirty Central, so I was still on radio when it happened, so I didn't hear it live either. But I started getting Twitter hits about it, uh, instant uh, it, it, you know moments after it happened, and, and shouts to Cal Boone for capturing it. Shouts to Cal Porter too, while we're of on course. the subject. Of- Shouts to Kyle Boone for capturing it and uh, sending it out into uh, the social media world. And Dave Pash, if you're listening, you're now on the clock. We need a Larnell shout-out during an Arizona game ASAP. (laughs) Norlander, um, Grant Williams, he's now averaging 20.4 points, 7.4 rebounds, 3.4 assists, 1.6 blocks, 1.3 steals, and 31.4 minutes per game for a Tennessee team that's 19-1, ranked number one in the country. He is better, statistically speaking, in basically every way you measure things this season. And again, he was the SEC Player of the Year last season. So I don't want to say anybody's got anything locked up in January, but I'll be shocked if he's not the SEC Player of the Year again. Um, Do you give him a real chance to catch Zion? Can anybody, perhaps even Ethan Happ, catch Zion in the Player of the Year race? It's possible, because I, I don't want to Heisman ourselves here. I feel right. like college football media, not all of them, but just a certain contention to the point where it, it when we hit mid-October, it, it feels like a, a discussion point frequently, maybe not annually, but frequently, where there's a particular player that seems like a foregone conclusion, and then you fast forward to that whatever, first first or second Saturday in December, and you see that, in fact, no, it wasn't, it wasn't the player that we thought. So it's possible. It's certainly possible because of the fact that R.J. Barrett, I think, would need to be on the top ten of any overall player of the year ranking list at this point. And if Zion still continues to be awesome, but R.J. Barrett you know, hits another level in terms of how much he's scoring, and maybe Zion's numbers trend back a little bit, they steal votes from each other, then it opens the window for a player like Grant Williams, who is – Parish, I'll say this: Great Williams seems more of a lock to win Player of the Year in his conference than Zion does Player of the Year nationally. Um, you look around at the rest of the league, and even though Williams is similar to um, Williamson in that his own teammate Admiral Schofield isn't lagging too far behind, I think what he is doing right now is uh, Grant Williams. What what he is doing is is so impressive. Tennessee is so good, and yes, I still you know still going to take another loss too, maybe three before we get to the t- the SEC tournament, but still I. He's got a stranglehold on that. You mentioned Ethan Happ. He leads the court report in that um, Ethan Happ hasn't been discussed as a player of the year candidate to this point. Maybe inside the the borders of that uh, famed cheese state over there in the great Midwest. And our shouts to everyone listening to this podcast, enduring 
insanely cold weather in Wisconsin and Illinois and Minnesota. Wind chills approaching negative 50 and 60 degrees. We hope this podcast is warming your hearts and your ears. Um, but Ethan Happ has not been uh, discussed, and he really should be. And it's not just because he's only one one-thousandth of a point behind Williamson in Ken Palm's Player of the Year formula, which is certainly notable. You mentioned Grant Williams is up across the board, basically, in every major statistical category. Ethan Happ is averaging career highs in almost every major statistical category, with the exception of two. I'll get to that real quick in just one second. But right now, Ethan Happ is on pace and averaging north of 17 points, 10 rebounds, and 5 assists. No Big Ten player ever has done that, and it has been at least 22 or 23 years, and it might even be longer. I have not been able to, to, to suss out and figure out if it happened when and where in the early 90s or 1980s. A player period in the level of all of D1, 17, 10, and 5. Doesn't seem that grand, but it just simply does not happen that often. In fact, there have been very few cases I haven't found. Bill Walton, Larry Bird have done it. Um, I'm sure there are a couple guys in the 80s, but the fact is Ethan Happ is the only dude right now flirting with that. And when you consider how valuable he is to Wisconsin, this is now a top 25 team in the rankings. It's obviously tra- it's it's doing well one four in a row, um, trying to bump up against Michigan and Michigan State in the Big Ten standings. Everything that he does just about needs to have him at the forefront of the conversation. I would actually get him closer now to the top five versus where I had him almost a week ago. Last thing, Paris, and I'll throw it back to you. The weird thing with Ethan Happ is this. He doesn't shoot three-pointers. And he's terrible at free throws. He's never been worse at free throws. He's shooting now below 50%, um, but he doesn't get taken out of games. And I talked with him about this, and he said that he, he's gone through so many different shooting coaches and mechanics and routines, and he actually settled on one he liked in the preseason. But once it failed him in the first few games of this season, he abandoned it and made the problem even worse. So now he's trying to get back into that. Hopefully he'll be somewhat consistent when we get to March. The ironic thing is the first 12 games of Ethan Happ's career – he was shooting nearly 80% from the foul line. It only it got progressively worse as a freshman. Then things really got out of hand. He's gotten worse and worse and worse. So he's this awesome, amazing player, one of the best ever in Wisconsin history, and yet this is this huge, glaring flaw. We wait and see if it winds up costing Wisconsin the tournament or not. But overall, I think you got to say Ethan Happ right now, a top-five player of the year candidate because all the numbers and historical trends suggest that he is. Um, I don't know how closely you look at player efficiency ratings, but Zion's got the – best in the country right now by a significant margin it's 43.36 uh, closest to him like number two in the country is 37.24 so he's more than six points higher than anybody else in the country in terms of per number two by the way is brandon clark at gonzaga gonzaga is interesting in the sense that um the leading returning score on the team was is killian tilly the guy most people say is their best player is rui hachimura and then the guy with the best PER is Brandon Clark. So when you got those, when you can check those three boxes with three different people, who's your best player? Who's your leading returning scorer? Who's got the highest PER? When you check those three boxes with three different players, you've got a hell of a basketball team. It's why I, I don't think Gonzaga is going to lose again before the NCAA tournament, and maybe not lose again all year. Like it's not crazy to me to think that uh, they could win the national championship. Let me ask you this: Is Mario Shayok on your Player of the Year radar at all? He's on the radar. I didn't have him top 10. I actually had Brandon Clark over Hachimura because I think he's doing just a bit more um, right now. Shayok is. I think Shayok still leads the Big 12 in scoring. Um, and he is an important factor, but 
I watch Iowa State and how skilled they are, 1-5 to five GP, and Taylor Horton Tucker is top 10, top 12 freshman in America. Tyrese Halliburton is the most effective and efficient freshman because of how um, well he shoots the three. Um, so, anyway, long way of answering it. He's on the radar, but I, I, I don't think he has a realistic chance of finishing, say, first-team All-American, which means he doesn't have a chance of winning it uh, overall because uh, he's, got, he's got a lot of help around him, and... I, he's. I mean, he, it's going to be him or him or Dietrich or Jarrett Culver that wins Big Twelve Player of the Year. Uh, one thing I would say in his defense, um, as it pertains to possible first team All America stuff, he's averaging nineteen point seven points per game right now, um, in thirty two point two minutes per game. Um, and remember, Iowa State's projected right now at Ken Palm to to win the Big Twelve outright. If they do that, then he's going to be getting proper national attention. Because like, if if Iowa State goes and wins the Big Twelve outright, Iowa State's going to end up being a top ten team, mm-hmm. probably. And then you got a guy averaging nineteen point seven points, five point rebound, five point one rebounds for a top ten team that just won the Big Twelve outright. Uh, interesting. He's shooting fifty one point four percent from the field. 41.0% from three-point range, 86.5% from the free throw line. And I got this from Iowa State, um, I guess it was a few days ago. Since the 2009-2010 season, only seven players have averaged at least 19 points while shooting 50, 40, and 85. And Merrill Shayok right now um, is, is on pace to become the eighth player in that span to do it. And so if he does that and Iowa State wins the Big 12, I do think he'll have a, a shot, at least a shot, to, to be a first-team All-American. Uh, before we get out of here, um, uh, I want to talk about St. John's for a minute because they play on Wednesday night. They're at Creighton. And I believe the last time we talked about St. John's, it was all positive stuff. You know, they were in the top 25. We had said in this four-game stretch if they could go 2-2 two and two, that – um, you know, you'd, you'd take that if you were Chris Mullen. I, I believe they did in that four-game stretch uh, go two and two. Let me confirm that real quick. They um, did, yeah, yes. They, yeah. they did. So they lost at Seton Hall. That was that weird game with the bad ref stuff happening. Then they beat Marquette at home. Then they won at Georgetown. Then they lost at Villanova, but only by five points. They were sitting there 14-2, and two, two and two over, uh, two, 14 to 2 overall, 2-2 two two in the league. And we were like, hey, this is all good stuff. Since then, they've gone 1-3 and three with losses to DePaul and Georgetown at home. The other loss coming at uh, Butler. Um, they're at Creighton on Wednesday night. And um, Mike Vaccaro, the uh, accomplished and uh, awarded uh, columnist at the New York Post, uh, wrote a column after the Georgetown loss, like basically saying, um, listen, like does Chris Mullen have the – whatever you know have the goods to get this thing turned around because uh, right now it's not looking like he does i'll ask you uh do you think chris mullen gets this turned around and if he doesn't um the implication from from vac at least was that if he can't win with this roster the way he needs to win with this roster then um he's just not built for the job what do you you think all of that's fair? Like it's, this the St. John. Well, we were talking about twist and turns, right? I mentioned Ole Miss. I mentioned Auburn. We mentioned Baylor going up. St. John's is a twist and turn in the wrong direction. It's totally fair, especially when you look at the Big East this year, which is weird. The margins are thin. Almost fifty percent of the league's games have been decided by six points or fewer. Eighteen out of thirty-eight league games so far. So the, the conference below Villanova and Marquette is extremely interchangeable, which means it's there for the taking. And when you look at the roster St. John's has, there's little excuse for it being 
as behind the, the ball right now as it is. In fact, here's a bad sign for St. John's. It's just barely cracking the top 50 in the net. It only has one quadrant, one win. It is the only team in the top 50 that has um, two losses or more in quad three or quad four and only has one quad one win. The most similar profile to St. John's is probably St. Mary's, which isn't sniffing the NCAA tournament if it were to start today. So that's not a great sign at all. And now it's staring down and a, a near impossible gauntlet in terms of it's not going to win three in a row. St. John's is not going to win at Creighton on Wednesday night, at Duke on Saturday, and then at Marquette the following Tuesday. That's all Ooh, in less than a week. Oh, man, jeez. Yes, it's all less than a week's time. You got to get at least, you need at least one. And the easiest one is Creighton, and that's not an easy place to win, period. Stealing it at Duke, uh, uh, Parrish, they, they, they did it last season, but the game was at home at MSG, and St. John's had that weird back-to-back Duke and Villanova. Uh, and then, it actually, I remember I beat Marquette as well after that. So it was a nice little three-game stretch. Asking for that two seasons in a row, particularly when all these games are on the road, is too tall a task. Hope that you can somehow steal both at Creighton and Marquette, have that talent show up. The Duke score is whatever it is. Get out of there at 2-1. You're going to be in much better shape. Um 0-3 is more likely hope or 0-3 is more like hoping you get to one and two. But yes, putting Mullins' job on uh, on blast here, I think, is validated at such a critical point in the season. And there was a clip that went around on Twitter, and it might have been elsewhere. I don't know, but uh, it wasn't a it was it's not the worst thing in the world, but it's just not a great look for Mullen in that it's a timeout in a critical game against Georgetown, critical spot, and you've got the assistant Greg St. Jean with the whiteboard, directing the team. You know what? Sometimes assistants run huddles. This isn't out of the norm. But it just it looked like Mullen was just not involved in the timeout period at that point. Um, he was tying his shoe, not even, like, engaged at all. Like right. that, to, Again, you're exactly right, and I do think that's worth pointing out. Assistants run huddles, I don't want to say all the time, but it's not – that's not abnormal and doesn't necessarily mean anything. But when Mullen already has a reputation of not being involved, engaged, and then that's on national television, like critical moment, critical game, your assistant's doing everything and you're just like tying your shoe. Now, I get it. Like, you know, but listen, your shoe comes untied, you need to tie your shoe. I'm sure that's what Chris would say. But it was like, it wasn't a great visual. It, it wasn't, and it was um, a microcosm, I think, for some of the concerns that St. John's fans have. So I thought this team would get into the NCAA tournament without much of a of a challenge, frankly. I thought by the time we got to the start of February, it would have taken on some losses, but it was going to be top three in the Big East and comfortably uh, trending toward it. But it's lost at home to DePaul, uh, which, which is an issue, and the Georgetown loss is an issue. If you, if you turn those losses into wins, we aren't having this conversation, frankly, on the podcast because they'd be in a much better spot, but that's not, that's not the case. They're 15-5. and five, They're not 17-3, and three, and their non-conference schedule was – uh, it rated horrendously. I mean, it was really rates as one of the 20 or 30 worst in all of college basketball, and it could be a problem overall, and it's why St. John's was never ranked despite the, fu- uh, despite the fact that it started 7-0, 8-0, 9-0, 10-0. Never cracked into the polls at that point. We, uh, we'll wait and see. It started well up to 12-0, but it is uh, it has gone sideways there. Real quick, Parrish, I have, a, I have a trivia time for you, if I may, since we talked about time. That's right. Trivia time, since we talked about undefeated. So Houston was the first team to 20 wins. This is also more more in-depth stuff here. I got a lot of stuff on the court report, people. Please give it a read. So Houston beat the field to 20 victories. And I had, as my mind sometimes works in weird ways, uh, 
a, a wonderment, a curiosity that I that I was hoping to fulfill, and I did. Uh, I wondered, and and I wondered how often the team that gets to twenty wins first does in the NCAA tournament, wins the national title, makes the Final Four, etc. You can find out all those answers in Wednesday's court report. My question for you, Parrish, is this. Since 1996-1997, there have been two coaches that have done it twice. Only two coaches have are on the list twice, first to 20 wins. Can you guess which coaches those are? John Calipari. Incorrect. He did it only one. Did he ever do it? I don't hold know. on, hold You're, on. He never did. It. No, he he never did. It. <laughs> um, I, really, he he wasn't the first to twenty wins ever. He's, even when he started, like thirty something and zero. Correct. He's now that can be a factor of the calendar and the schedule. But John Calipari right. at Memphis and at Kentucky has never been the first to twenty wins in a season. That's that seems ridiculous. He's had the last undefeated team at, at least two times. Yep, crazy but true. Okay, but I trust you. I, I, <laughs> thank you. Um, but the. Mark, the, the Yes, yes. Mark Few okay. is one of them. And then the other guess isn't that hard as well, although it's a little bit tricky, but it's not a hard guess. Uh, Mark Krzyzewski? Uh, nope. Duke has never been the final or the first team to 20 wins. In the, mm-hmm. Oh, wait. Uh, that's uh, incorrect. I lied to you. I didn't lie to you before. I just lied to you now. Duke was the first to 20 wins in that famed, we were on the 20-year anniversary, 1998-99 team. This is a terrible trivia time. You don't even have your facts straight. No, I just uh, well, yeah, I didn't actually there. So, but I got him straight now. Uh, but Hall, uh, of Fa- Hall of Fame coach, who's the other one? We've got okay, Hall of Fame coach. So we've got Mark Few, um, Rick Pitino. No, uh, it was never Pitino. Okay, um, was it Roy? It was not Roy. North Carolina has never been the first. Well, Roy has one. Again, I'm 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 lying to you. Um, <laughs> the worst trivia time ever. Wow, this is this is uh, this is not only is this not only is this a terrible trivia time. You are correct, and it's th- <laughs> it's it's three coaches, not two, because Kansas did it in ninety six, ninety seven, and ninety seven, ninety eight. Okay, so Roy did do it. There is another Hall of Famer that applies this. I promise, the next trivia time, I won't screw up this badly. <laughs> um, the other Hall of Famer, I, I don't, Bill Self. Correct, but. Okay. It is self at Kansas 0708, and then it is self at Tulsa in 99-2000. Tulsa was the first to 20 wins that season. So there are three coaches that have done it. Uh, I don't know why I didn't think there were three uh, when Kansas clearly did it in back-to-back seasons. Those were those really, really awesome Kansas teams, mid to late 90s, uh, neither of which, though, even made it past the Sweet 16. But anyway, Houston's the first one this season, and I've got a historical look at the seeds that those teams ended up with, where they finished in the NCAA tournament, their records, et cetera, et cetera. I happen to think Houston's one of the 10 best teams in the country uh, because of its defense, and uh, maybe this pretends well for the Cougars. We'll have to wait and see, but just keep an eye on that going forward. Um, they are a standout team in the American. And that is another edition of Trivia Time where we sometimes ask questions. We don't even know what the answers are. <sighs> I know. Well, might be. Shouts to Devin Downey. Shouts to Chester, South Carolina. Shouts to Terry M.F. and Teagle. He's the legend. Shouts to Larnell. And if you haven't subscribed to the Island College Basketball Podcast yet, I don't know what you're doing with your life. Please go do that. You can do it via Apple Podcasts. And when you do it, what we're requesting is that you rate it favorably. That means five stars and nice comments. You guys have been terrific. 
in uh, in helping us with that. Um, the subscriptions are up. The ratings are up. The nice comments are all over the place. So thank you, thank you, thank you. If you are somebody who's already done it, well, I appreciate you. We appreciate you. If you haven't yet, we, we still appreciate you, but not nearly as much as we appreciate the other people. But you got the power to change that. You just have to go subscribe to the Island College Basketball Podcast via Apple Podcasts. So go do that, and we're going to talk to you again on Friday morning. Until then. Thank you.